You're listening to the Mobcast Network. Welcome for Renee Oberjama and Terry Farrell. Yes, Netflix or 
they're, they're, they're able to watch the arc of the show. When it was on, when it was one episode coming every week for seven years, that, that demanded a kind of focus that not all audiences were ready to give it. They wanted to have a story each week that had a kind of a complete completeness to it. And, um, and I think that now, uh, my sense from the audiences that are experiencing it as, as the arc, and it was, wasn't it the, I think it was the, the first one, maybe the only one, to, to, to have a, a, an arc, yeah, you know, that you was. needed to, to follow it. So now it's, now I believe it, it's benefiting from that, and, and the complexity of the stories, and the complexities of the characters um, are... Um, and our relationships. Yeah, the yeah. relationships. I, I think things. that's... Uh, it, it, I, yeah. But that's up to you. Obviously, the fact that you bothered to come out here on a Sunday, uh, almost still morning, to, uh, to, see, to hear us try and articulate anything is... Uh, <laughs> well, despite any uh, original uh, grievances people might have had, even the idea that uh, maybe people were heartbroken if there wasn't uh, that intro dialogue you get broke out with just music versus uh, that uh, going boldly. Oh, to explore. So there was changes is what it kind of came down to. I never thought of that. I yeah. never did either because I thought our music and the whole thing oh, was it's amazing. Yeah. But that's right. There was no Captain's Law. No. Right, right. It was really it, in itself the show explored new grounds as far as the whole uh, sure. franchise went. Uh, to me, as a very big fan of the show, I always thought uh, the perspective that the scenario was lended uh, were, were much deeper than the other ones. Uh, your character, your character both, uh, between how other people perceive them. I think there's actually an alignment where uh, Quark says to Jake Sisko, nobody thinks of themselves as being nefarious. They, they all have their own cause. So you end up almost in a, a character anyways, a, a godlike status, being with the founders, and then your character had uh, the perspectives of, of several lives. Uh, was there much conversation on that subject? And so much of this always develops afterwards, as far as you say now, finding its audience with Netflix, uh, people have a greater appreciation of that. Has there been any particular uh, themes that have come out where people have appreciated and your silence. <laughs> <laughs> and the silence. That's how it happens when you have a fan doing these things, by the way. No, no, no. It's, well, it's, you're asking in a big concept, so it's trying to pull together an answer. Take some thought. No, I didn't. Yeah, I mean, there's not a no, yes or no. The thing is, when you, you go to work, you start a show, and there's a character written on the page, and it, whether it's Jadzia or Odo or whoever, and, and as an actor, you look at the words and you try to figure out what it is the writers who have envisioned the character, what they want you to give them, and you, and you do your best to interpret the words. And then, over time, they, you're like an instrument playing their music, but pretty soon they have to start writing to your instrument. And I think, actually, that was something that I noticed most clearly with the development of your character. 
that when you came in, they thought, I think, you know, the sort of crass Ferengi Paramount people were thinking, oh, so we get a hot chick in here and she'll be the sex symbol and that'll be great and, you know, and that'll be good and that's uh, what she'll do. And, and I think, you know, I don't I think what you developed was a much more complex character and I'm not sure they saw that coming. When I, yeah, when I first got the part, they didn't know what they wanted. Every time I came in, they would describe me in another way and and give me limitations, right. which made it very difficult. And I had difficult dialogue, and to the point where I, I really, I felt helpless. I felt like I couldn't make a decision without it being the wrong decision. And, um, and they were worried about me, so they hired an acting coach, which also made me feel, you know, demoralized. Like, oh my God, I can't make a decision. They don't know what they want, and now it's my fault. Like I said, now I don't know how to do my job. So I, it was like, oh, I felt like I was falling backwards. And um, when did you, when did you finally feel like, okay? Yeah, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> they hired Ivana Chubbuck to work with me, and when I worked with her, the first time we worked on a scene together, she said, well, there's, you're a good actress. There's nothing wrong with your acting. You need a dialogue coach. That's what you need. Just to learn the damn lines is what, yeah. yeah right. You're not getting enough sleep. There's no time for you to do it. And, you know, it, you know it. That, that's really difficult, not only to have the discipline to do it, but if they don't, if they only give you a nine and a half hour turnaround, it's nearly physically impossible to get your makeup off. Well, first of all, drive back and forth to the studio, get your makeup off, learn your lines, have dinner, wake up, have breakfast. Oh my God, you don't have enough hours to yourself to actually get your job done. But she really helped me too because they would give her notes and she would tell me exactly what they say. And she said, you know what, they're telling me they want this to be more serious. She said, but I like how you bring your sense of humor to it, so I want you to keep doing that. And so basically, she would give me this note about this particular person, and she would say, anytime you're feeling frustrated, think, fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> And then I got that in my body as Dax, and, and I was, I, it's interesting, I was doing yoga at the time, but like my warrior one, two, and threes became like my armor that I started to wear as I wore my character, and um, it took a while for me to balance that out. I was carrying yeah. some anger and some hardcore um, uh, protection to protect myself emotionally. But it was Ivana believing in me that made the difference for me. And then they started to write better for me and I started to get my uh, confidence up. And uh, But it was hard, it was really hard. That's the process uh, when you're, especially in, because even though in terms of the, the character roster <coughs> Star Trek, <coughs> certain, Iconic, you know, I was clearly the 
alien character. I was a direct descendant. I could not have existed. I mean, Odo could not have existed if Spock had not existed, or Data had not existed, or you know. And I so I was always very aware of my responsibility to that aspect of it, but also that I'm not them, and I'm a different. I have different rhythms. I have different. Things to find. So it, 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 the process of finding the writers and producers was, um, or that they had in their mind, that Michael Piller wrote, was a young Clint Eastwood. Now I was already in my 50s. <laughs> certainly wasn't um, a, a Clint Eastwood kind of. Oh, character. come on. Oh, come on. <laughs> you sexy devil, you. <laughs> but um, uh, so. I, I don't know why they just decided, well, let's uh, let him play it, when they had all this. And so, I don't know where I'm going with this, but the fact that's what happens, you know, when you come into a role, when you start to meet a role, that you are going to be living for six or seven years of your life. And you sort of knew that was going to be the case, because that's what happens with the Star Trek franchise, usually. Well, I'd like to say, I think that also in hiring you, I'm pretty certain that your reputation for being a talented actor oh. must have preceded you. <laughs> I'll pay you later. <laughs> take cash. Just uh, take a quick moment here to uh, take some questions from the audience. Uh, you, sir. I want to say thank you to both of y'all. Y'all probably changed a lot of people's lives. And, uh, and I was wondering, what was the funniest scene or outtake or whatever for y'all on the show? Gosh, the question I can never answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I don't know about you, but whenever anybody says, what was the best, when it has an EST at the end of it, like the funniest of the thing. Uh, Take I, I, I don't think that question. But the thing is, you know, I mean, we weren't a funny set of uh, TNG. They were always laughing and kicking around and having a great old time, and we were serious. <laughs> well, we were. All our characters were neurotic and screwed up. That's why we liked it. I was. And I was, but Dax was. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and a lot of, I think, a lot of the, the, the tenor of a show is dictated by the captain. And Avery, you know, with this incredible dignity and power and almost dangerous kind of vibe that he gave off, um, and he demanded, personally as an actor, and as his character, he demanded real commitment and seriousness. There was not a lot of screwing around on the, on the set. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Can you think of anything hysterically funny to tell them? <laughs> <laughs> Let's laugh. <laughs> no, I mean, there are things that are funny now, but at the time when I was bawling my eyes out, it wasn't very funny. <laughs> um, working with Colm, 
But then that would be frustrating all in of itself because he would know his lines. He'd come and he'd learn them as we were lighting. And then, I can't get my lines down if you don't know your lines because I'm like, what is he talking about? No, then we'd film and he'd have it all down. And I'd be like, no, oh, I'm flustered. Like, I wasn't ready for him to be, anyway, it's crazy. I don't even know how to describe what that is. And then off camera, he, he just had this way of making like a face. Like, like he'd do it on her. Purpose. You know what I mean? <laughs> a test of your concentration. And it would be like at 1.30 or 2 in the morning, and it's going to break. You're going to break. Yeah. So, but not funny to tell a story funny, but like funny like you're not supposed to be laughing, so you start laughing. That kind of thing. You know, like when something silly happens, you're in elementary school, and you're going to get in trouble, but you can't help but laugh. Like that. Stay question for that. Yes, ma'am. Uh, first of all, I'd just like to say, Deep Space Nine is my favorite in Star Trek, and I don't care what anybody says. Woo! Yeah! Second, uh, Renee, you played another one of my favorite characters in uh, Little Mermaid. Woo! And I was wondering if you would say my favorite phrase, please. Terry must be so bored with hearing me, you know, les poissons, les poissons, how I love les poissons. <laughs> First time, I think we ever, we were in the makeup room together, for the, and we didn't really know each other, and, and she turned and she said, oh, sing les poissons. <laughs> and he did, he sang the whole song for me. <laughs> And then he used to yell at me for not knowing my lines. <laughs> I never yelled at you. Yes, she, she once turned to me and I said, she was, at, they were fixing her makeup and the, the director was giving us notes and things and, um, and she came in a little late because they were doing that and she sat down and she didn't really know what it was it was like in the control room or something. And I turned to her and I thought, I'm such a control freak. I, thought, I said, well, what do you want, Suzanne? She said, oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll tell you. I did. <laughs> Six months. <laughs> There's one scene up. There was one scene where I had terrible lines. And we were looking at something, and I don't remember what it was. And I couldn't get my lines right, and Renee was like, oh, can somebody write it down for her, please? <laughs> and there was no, we would, we would, there's no place to put it that the camera doesn't see it. Oh, God. Like, now, you know, now people, that, that's all I do is I say, uh, thank you when I do Madam Secretary, which I do a couple times a year, and, and um, I have these complicated lines like she had, and, and, and I, I walk on the set and I say, uh, Let's write those lines down. <laughs> those lines written down. <laughs> I did that for Renegades. I'm like the freedom of being old enough to not give a shit. Okay, we're <laughs> If I have to cry for you, then I'm going to be Gabrielle Tears. Fuck that. Yes. But I'm too old to want to remember anything that sad, so let's just move forward. <laughs> There would be stories about the fact that Marlon Brando never learned his lines, and that he would 
always have them written down somewhere. In fact, to the degree that sometimes he would make the actor that he was talking to put the script on his chest if the camera was behind the actor and Marlon Brando was talking to him. Or, he, or, or on his forehead even, so that he would talk to him. And I would think, oh, that's disgraceful, how terrible. And now I realize he really knew what he was doing. <laughs> no, but as an actor, he knew learning your lines. And you know, when you guys, people say, well, how do you ever learn your lines? That's the least important part of your work as an actor. It's, it's a pain, to, especially if they're very complicated lines. But that's, that's just craft, that's just, a, that's, you know, work. But acting and making those lines sound organic and natural and mean something, that has nothing to do with what, and so. That's the craft. Yeah, worrying about whether you know your lines gets in the way of your being able to actually fill it with life and believability. And so, I have no shame. Just, uh, write it down, write it down. Let's take another question from this side. Yes, sir. Good morning. My question is for Terry. Um, a lot of actors and actresses talk about their inspiration and what they draw from for their character. But with the character of Jazzy Dax, you had seven other lives. Um, was that a lot more complex? Because you would have to draw from like seven different inspirations for Leela or Tobin or anything like that? Um, what was really great is in the beginning, um, I did let that torture me a bit, and then just, <laughs> I just came to the realization I could only play what was right in front of me, because just like playing too many, you can't play all different emotions and different parts of yourself at all times, all you can do is be present and in the moment, so I had to play what was on the paper. And what, what I was really talking about under the lines, but I but to worry about whether it was Leela or Tobin or that's um, as complicated as trying to play every part of you that you've ever been in your lifetime. So I had I kind of uh, likened the lifetimes to um, I was one kind of person growing up in Iowa. And then, or that was a version of me. And then when I moved to New York City and became a fashion model, that was another version of me. And then I moved to LA and I became an actress and that was one version of me. And then I left my career and followed a movie star and that was another version of me. So these are all evolutions of who I am that um, eventually make me who I am today. But to me, uh, that's how I made all of the lifetimes of Dax make sense to me, that they are just different periods in Dax's life that came to this culmination that became Judzia Dax. Does that make sense? Very much. Thank you. Okay, cool. Thanks. <laughs> hey, thanks for being here. Uh, real quick, I did want to give a plug to uh, Adam Nimoy's upcoming DS9 documentary. Remind everybody, Thank go you. to Indiegogo and check it out for it. Thank you. Get my Trailhouse cookies. Yes. And I know you'll be so, making them. So Julie and Mike Moy might be helping me, but yeah. <laughs> so a few months ago I got to listen to Aaron Eisenberg's uh, very entertaining but long-winded uh, explanation of how he came up with the Ferengi dance for Jadzia's bachelorette party. 
So I was just wondering, would like to know if you had any uh, funny tales from your end of, of uh, that for the uh, Jadzia Bachelorette and wedding. What I have to offer from that is I had a girlfriend, or I have a girlfriend actually, still a very good friend of mine. Um, we traveled to Providence, Rhode Island, and her niece was very little. She was probably two and a half, three, and she used to love to do this thing, and, and she called it Shirley Cat, and she goes, Shirley Cat! <laughs> and so that was my contribution to the dance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that popped in my head, but believe me, when the director says, hey, make it up, it's like, well, we're just going to pull it from anywhere we can get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's where that came from. You know, you're just going to have to invest in that Deep Space Nine documentary. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, basically, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, it was the end of our contracts for the sixth season. Um, I like how you're, just get the freaking mint. <laughs> you know, it's because he's freaking sick of hearing this. I'm being very sound and quiet. Thank you. Go ahead. So, <laughs> now that I have permission, nutshell, given a take it or leave it offer, uh, I wasn't okay with that after six years of working my ass off on the show, and I think that I grew a lot as an actress, and I thought that I did a really good job, and I think the way I feel appreciated when I'm at work is when I get paid more. <laughs> it, it was one of those, uh, it, it wasn't a raise where you went, oh, thank you. It was like a, all right, well, Thank you. <laughs> and um, I wasn't, there were, there was uh, a couple actors that were allowed to go out and do other things. I was not. Uh, I asked if I could. The answer was no. That was before the situation came up. So I already knew by example that I wasn't going to be given any kind of, um, there was a half hour show. Uh, I think you've heard of it called Seinfeld. And uh, Jerry wanted me to come in for it, and I couldn't because they wouldn't let me out for the five days. And as you know, there were just a couple people on the show, me and maybe two others. So, you know, obviously I had a burden on me on the Deep Space Nine set. <laughs> no, seriously, that was confusing. There's so many of us on the show. If I was gone for five days, there are plenty of episodes where I come on, you hear my calm voice, or you see me in one scene. It's not like it couldn't have been worked out, but this person did not want to make that happen for me. Um, no, take it or leave it. I said, well, if it, it doesn't have to look like money, can I do less episodes? Can I do, can it be reoccurring? No, it's take it or leave it. So it was a terrible year, that sixth season, because um, uh, this just producer was really rough on me and would call me and, and, uh, and have other people approached me to try to make me feel badly, and uh, it just gave me more resolve that I was doing the right thing. And I played Dax for six years, so somebody trying to bully me and take advantage of me was not going to happen. So what it really did was just make me feel more right in the decision that I was making. Because I was trying to do what was right for me, and I was feeling really burnt out, and uh, I was just really exhausted, and I just wanted to either be given enough money that I felt like, okay, that gives me a reason to keep plowing through, or let me do less work so I can get some rest and have a life, because I don't have a life. And um, 
you know, I didn't have a family or anything, so it's just really hard to go alone. And so I just, that's what happened. And um, this just, you know. They blew it. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Terry, even though we were sad to see you go for ASDAX, I'm glad you made that decision. It was the best one for you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. My question is for, for Renee. Renee, you directed uh, a few episodes of DS9. Can you reflect with us about directing, especially my favorite episode, Waltz, the one with uh, Cisco and Ducat stuck on the planet, and the, the performances that were magnificent, watching Ducat slowly going into madness. Can you reflect a little bit about directing the, the Yeah, episode? Um, you know, I... to my control freak aspect uh, in my personality. I mean, I'm always, I've always loved to collaborate and, and throw in ideas or uh, whatever. But I, I don't have a director's personality. I'm, I'm not, I'm not that, I don't, I'm not a chess player, which you need to be. You need to see the long game, and I'm not that. I live in the moment. I go from moment to moment. But, at one point, um, Jonathan Frakes was directing an episode, and I was talking to him about being an actor, moving into directing, and he said, you have to do it, you have to do it. He said, where else are they gonna give you a chance to get an education that would cost thousands of dollars if you went to the UCLA Film School, and you'll get to do it, you've got to do it. And Rick Berman was encouraging me to do it, and so I finally said, okay, uh, uh, uh. and you have to go through a kind of a process of, uh, they teach you aspects of like script supervising and, and going to the editing room and casting sessions and things. And I was doing it, but I was like, mm. and then one day I was going to my car in the parking lot and Rick said, are you, you're ready? And I said, I don't, he said, you're ready. And I was assigned a show to do. And I was terrified, um, because I didn't have a clue. Um, I, I, I just, I knew that I could work with actors and make sort of help in that way, but in terms of where you put the camera and whether it's in the right line, crossing the line and over the shoulder, and how much do you have to do? And so I would say that, the, the, in, to, in a nutshell, that, um, um, that I think I directed uh, eight episodes, and, I, and now I'm going to make this up off the top of my head, but I think that, I, I would think that uh, three of them were okay, I got away with it, with the help of the actors and the crew, sort of covering, getting, holding my back, and then I would say three of them were really, mediocre, um, and two of them I was proud of, and um, one of them was Waltz, and that was um, a difficult episode. It was difficult because Mark Alimo, a wonderful, strange actor, and, 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 and I would say this if he were sitting next to me, I mean, just a, a very, very complicated animal. He was very upset by that. So, because 
The reason he was so interesting as the character was he thought he was the hero of the whole episode of the, of the series. He thought he was the romantic character. He thought he was, and that made his villainy that much more compelling and interesting. And he hated that episode because he said, well, it's like I'm a Nazi or something. It's like I'm, he just didn't want to go down that evil path. And, and I, I called Ira from the soundstage, Ira Thayer, who was running the show, uh, and I said, you know, it's going to be really, really a problem. He's feeling that the character is so dark and he just is uncomfortable with that. And Ira said, he, you know, he is a Nazi and I, we want him to be as bad and evil as you. And I said to him, Ira, you know, Marco Lima is not an evil man, the human being. And that is going to come through whether you like it or not. Because you can't, anybody who plays a totally evil character is very charismatic and attractive. I mean, think of Silence of the Lambs, or, you know, you just, you can't play pure evil if you are yourself as a human being not purely evil. It just won't, that's, you bleed through. No matter how much makeup, no matter how much crap they have you say, no matter how evil you are, it, and you may, that may be hard to, but, Face it, you, you, the more evil a character, the more somehow attractive they are. And um, so I'm, I hung up on that. I said, well, it's not going to happen. I hung up. Mm. And I went back to Mark and I said, just, just do it. Just play it with truth and with heart and it'll be okay. And it was. It was, uh, I think it was okay. Oh, it's a fantastic episode. Thank you very much. This guy here, and we'll finish up with those two really fast if you don't mind. Uh, yes, sir. Um, so, which, Mr. Ojeon, while you gave a very diplomatic answer um, earlier, what is more surprising to you? Uh, one, that the, the Dominion seems to have infiltrated our government centuries ahead of schedule, or that they've done such a poor job of impersonating humans? <laughs> <laughs> Find out this season, and I thought, oh darn it, I don't know where. 
But that's the way it is, you know, as, as, as an actor. Then I got it, and then I started having to deal with that. And that was fascinating to me. And then that became, and I'm going to digress quickly. When we did what is, by many accounts, the best episode we ever did, which was Far Beyond the Stars, where we all got to play without makeup and different people, different human beings. Um, I remember Eric Ira coming to me and saying, he was nervous, he said, well, because you're going to sort of be the bad guy. And I said, Ira, that's how I've made my living. <laughs> Most of my life I have played um, sort of either nitwits or bad guys like Clayton on Benson or whatever. <laughs> that's, I was driving my son to work one day, to work, to school one day. And he was, he was um, eight years old and I was doing Benson. And I guess he was getting teased at school because my character was such a, a nitwit and a pain in the ass and everything. And he said, Dad, why, why do you play the bad guy? And I thought about it for a moment and I said, because it's the best part usually. <laughs> <laughs> On a positive note, um, that last couple uh, questions will go when he when they killed off Jed D. Beckers. Um, Becker gained a great actress. Oh, thank you. It's really kind of you. Yeah, that was that was Here, obviously Netflix, everybody knows about that. Documentary, if you mind sharing a little bit yeah. more information um, on the documentary. Documentary, um, there's an Indiegogo campaign and a DS9 doc. Um, I don't know how to tell you how to look it up and I don't have my car, uh, phone out here. But I, I'm assuming you go to Indiegogo and look up Deep Space Nine doc. And that should be right there. We're doing really great with our fundraising. We're over 300,000, and the guys are, um, Le uh, almost said Leonard Nimoy, Adam Nimoy and Dave Zapone uh, are producing, and, and Adam's directing. They're the same guys who did, um, well, Dave did several documentaries with uh, William Shatner, uh, Get a Life, and The Captains, uh, among others. And um, obviously, Adam did um, For the Love of Spock. And um, obviously, I'm a big fan of his. <laughs> but I'm really excited because they've had meetings with CBS, and because the, the Indiegogo campaign is going so well, they're having more meetings, so they're really hoping that the more money that they raise, the better documentary, and hopefully, um, you know, that we're all going to be super thrilled with what comes about from all of this excitement. And it, it's just been a thrill because um, it, it's the following, obviously, with Netflix and, and everybody being really super excited has been um, this resurgence of excitement around Deep Space Nine has been a little overwhelming and exciting this last year over the 2016 50th anniversary. But when we went to do the Indiegogo campaign, 
and raised the 150,000 in 26 hours, I think it was, and now we're over 300,000, and we're still only, we have 20 days left for the campaign. It's just it's amazing. It really is amazing and very exciting, and, and you know, I don't know, but when they came out with the DVDs and they, they this whatever this latest release is, and they, CBS um, asked me to tweet about it, and I'm like, is it in Blu-ray? And they're like, no. I'm like, oh. <laughs> like, I kind of don't want to tweet it, because I know people are going to be a little ticked off, and sure enough, I tweet it, it's like, well, it's not Blu-ray, it's not Blu-ray, it's not Blu-ray, why is it Blu-ray? So, you know, maybe. Um, I don't know, it's supposed to be super expensive, and I heard part of the problem is about how we did our CGI and everything on Deep Space. It's something, some technical thing about that creates a real problem, that things like have, have to be re reshot and not a... And that's the problem that they're having with creating a B Blu-ray. So, knowing that, I wish they'd make a release about it so that um, everybody could know and understand exactly what it is. I, I don't think they're not doing it because they don't want to. I, I think it's really a real stumbling block that um, it's impossible to bring everybody back and do green screen. First of all, other than maybe Odo, most of us who don't have makeup on aren't going to look the same. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for being nice when you tell me I'm a great person, but trust me, if I'm right next to my shot of when I'm 28, I'm definitely going to look 53. <laughs> All right, well, uh, you guys are back on the floor uh, at the Bay Center, yep. so uh, feel free to obviously head back that way to uh, get a chance to, to say hi out to folks, All right? So. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Mopcast Network on facebook.com slash mopcastnetwork, or just visit us at mopcast.com. And remember, this is our contribution to the multiverse. Go out and make yours. Thank you for listening to the Mopcast Network.